Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to the Active Duty Passive Income Podcast. We have another awesome episode going on today, and I'm going to bring Tim Kelly on later to introduce our guest. But before I get to the show, I want to give a quick update on an event going down April 5th. If you are in the Hampton Roads area, you need to make your way to downtown Norfolk at 6 p.m. We're going to have a military house hacking seminar. That's right. It is our first house hacking seminar, and we are going to deep dive the VA loan and how you can use it to get success. And we're going to talk about market specifics here in the Virginia area. So if you are in the Virginia area or someone you know, maybe it's a friend or a spouse or whoever, right? Let them know it's going on April 5th at 6 p.m. in downtown Norfolk. There will be a link to the show notes page for the Eventbrite page that you can schedule and reserve your seat, all right? There are limited seats, so make sure you get there and you reserve early. Make sure that you notify your friends to go ahead and schedule early because they do not want to miss out. This is going to be an event that is absolutely amazing, and we are bringing a guest speaker from the local area to help us out with it. All right, guys, let's start the show. Hey, Freedom Fighters, welcome to the Active Duty Passive Income Podcast, the only place where military members, veterans, and their families learn how to build wealth through real estate investing. I'm your host, Mike Foster, and I'm here to show you how to stop wasting your benefits. Now get off your ass, step up to the firing line, and make ready for today's lesson. Shooter, stand by. Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to the Active Duty Passive Income Podcast. We have an amazing guest here, but we also have Tim Kelly co-hosting the podcast with us. What's going on, Tim? Going, Mike. Thanks for having me on here, man. Appreciate it. Super excited. Let's do it. All right, all right. Let's do it. Let's do it. And uh, and we have here Charles Dehard. He is an amazing, amazing guy. He's been teaching folks about multifamily, specifically mobile home park investing for years and he is an expert in the area and he is going to deep dive mobile home park investing for us. Charles, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. I really appreciate you guys having me on here today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for coming on to the show with us. We are, uh, it's an absolute honor and pleasure to have you. And, uh, and for those of you who don't know, uh, Charles is also uh, helping us or he's been an integral part in helping us perform our multifamily curriculum which is coming out. When, Tim? Target, 1 April. 1 April. All right. So guys Ooh. get excited for that. That's going to be awesome. Ooh, it's coming up. Coming up. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, so thank you again so much, Charles. Charles, do you mind going into your uh, background on your military career? Yeah, sure. Um, so I joined the military at the age of 19. I started out in the Air Force. And at the time, that was around uh, 2003. Um, at the time, the Air Force was doing, so when I got out of all of my training, the Air Force was doing a force reduction. They were, they were reducing the, uh, the number of airmen, and they were trying to encourage people to go from the Air Force into the, uh, into the Army. So that program was called Blue to Green. And the early part of 2005, I signed up for that program. 
and there was a bit of a fumble in the program and I ended up back home after, you know, the Air Force kind of let me go. The Army dropped the ball and I ended up back home for, for a little while and the Army kept kind of dragging their feet. And so I eventually found my way into the Marine Corps office and they, they were very, very quick to get me into, uh, into training. So oh, man. I ended up in the, uh, yeah, as they, as they are, they can get you in there in about a week. Mm. So um, ended up at Paris Island about 10 days after walking into his office. And, uh, from there did, uh, did boot camp all over again. Um, so that was my second boot camp in basically two years. And then, uh, did the school of infantry. Um, and then because I had, I was kind of smart the second time around, I signed up to be a reservist, uh, just in case I didn't like it. And, uh, they sent me back home and I, I went into the, uh, to the reserve mode and got a job. Um, did that for, not long before um, a unit that was in need had a, they, they basically called uh, for volunteers to go uh, overseas. It was a unit called first battalion, 24th Marines. And we went to Fallujah in 2006 and did the, it was kind of like the last part of um, the Ambar awakening where the, the local population was turned against Al Qaeda. So we took, uh, it has happened before in some areas in uh, south of Baghdad in 2005. And then uh, right before we got to Fallujah, it happened in Ramadi. Some of the guys in Ramadi had, right after the Battle of Ramadi, had turned, uh, started turning the population against uh, Al Qaeda. And what, what kind of came out of this was a really, really deep intelligence network that was, um, that really ultimately became sort of what drove all of our sniper missions. Um, which I kind of failed to mention. I went to sniper school before, before going overseas, but <laughs> well, all right. um, so I was in, I was in the sniper platoon and uh, was a school trained sniper and all of that, uh, all that stuff that we did kind of drove all of our missions for the last half of our deployment in Fallujah. It was a really, really good experience. Um, and so when I came back from that, uh, that's kind of when I got my first taste of real estate investing, I guess you could say. Yeah, uh, I kind of grown up around it my entire life, but my grandfather was a, um, he kind of did some residential development, uh, when I was growing up and it was kind of like his side gig when he was retired and he, uh, him and I built a house together and that was kind of my first, became my first rental property. I owned that all the way through. I still own it today, but I, I owned it all the way through, uh, the other three combat tours I did in the Marine Corps and, um, it was kind of like supplementing my income and, you know, we, we built it ourselves. So, you know, it, it always had a ton of equity. Um, and you know, that was, a that's kind of my first taste of real estate investing. And I didn't really do anything else with it until after I, after I left the Marine Corps in 2011 and began uh, contracting overseas with a company called triple canopy. So that's the, in a nutshell, that's my, military experience, I guess you could say. All right. Yeah, no. And, and then great. And even the first taste in investing, but, uh, but thank yeah, you. yeah. Thank, thank you, sir. And thank you for your service. That, that's amazing. Um, so oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's definitely a rough, uh, some rough tours, I'm sure. But, um, but you know, and then, so you, you got your taste of real estate, you decided that, that this was mm -hmm. where you wanted to head then, right? I mean, this is, this was, for sure your thing. Um, and you started out in residential development, but what, 
I guess, led you to mobile home parks? How did, how did you end up making that transition? Yeah. So my, my rental property just had one really for almost five years, but it, it did really well. It was always, I always had it occupied when I wanted it occupied and it was always kind of a place I could stay when I, when I didn't want to have a, have an occupant there. And, uh, and so, you know, I kind of had a little bit of a background in, in, in it. And in 2012, when I started making money, you know, some real money as a contractor, um, I started looking around at Atlanta as kind of being the next place I wanted to start putting, you know, some money in, in that market. And uh, Atlanta at the time had been hit. They were, they were still recovering from the, from the great recession. Mm. So at that time you could buy a, you could buy a house and occupied single family home off of uh, Trulia for about 25 or 30 grand. Oh, and, um, wow. you know, one that already came with a tenant and, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty, um, it was, it was a really good time to be an investor and have some money. So I started buying these single family homes. Again, there was no financing at the time, especially for, for these homes. Um, but a $30,000 home in Atlanta, that would kind of, that would be a C-class neighborhood. It, they, were, they weren't war zone type properties. Um, but the market quickly recovered but in, by, by about 2013, uh, all those great opportunities that were at least like that had dried up. There were still good opportunities out there, but um, I kind of got tired of single family and, and wanted to move on to multifamily where, you know, you, you kind of got, you got the, you had the ability to get a management company involved. That's really what I wanted. Right. Or, you know, just, to, just at least to have some scale to, you know, single family. The biggest downfall with single family is that when you really look at the nominal dollars that you make on an investment, it's not that much and your tenant could very easily uh, just drive you insane just to make a couple hundred dollars a month. <laughs> so, and, and I was experiencing that. So yep. um, I sold off all of my single family stuff and, and uh, started looking at multifam and, and very, very quickly uh, had a broker just, you know, they were kind of testing me with deals to see what I, what I, might, I might like. And they brought me a mobile home park and I, um, it seemed kind of interesting. At least the price point was very interesting. It was a 20 space park. And I think the price was like $99,000. So it was about the, about the cost wow. of, a, of a regular a residential house. Okay. And um, so I went and looked at it and that's kind of the first taste of really the, you know, having them explain that, you know, the tenants own their own homes. So, that's a big, that was a big plus for me that I didn't have to deal with the extreme amount of maintenance uh, that a lot of these tenants can, can put on a, a lot of stress that they can put on their landlord. And the other thing is that they, um, you know, it's, it seemed like better than an apartment because they had their own yard and uh, it seemed like the tenants liked living there better than at least the ones that lived in that park liked living there better than they would have liked living in a comparable apartment complex. So it just seemed like a really good deal all, all the way around. Um, I didn't buy that deal because it had a, a major infrastructure problem. It had a sewage, a sewage issue. Uh, but it did cause me to start looking for, you know, some coaching on the, on the business. And I, and I wound up going to a, um, a seminar. It was a Frank and Dave boot camp. I think everyone in this business has been in, in, in mobile home park land has been in. 
uh, been in their seminar. So um, I, I ended up going there and, and, and uh, they kind of turned me on to the idea of building a database and, and going direct to owner to find these properties instead of going through a broker. Awesome. Wow. So that's, so that's really interesting because it seems like, you know, you found the opportunity, right? I mean, for a, a mm-hmm. plot that was about the same cost of a home and you, you dove into it and then you, and then you decided to get some coaching and education. Is that kind of how that, how that played out? Yeah. I mean, I, I dove into it. It had a, it had septic and I'd never dealt with septic before. I, I, I had it residential. So the house that I built in Virginia, it, we built that with a septic system. Um, but their septic system, they had, you know, basically, I think they had 10 individual septic systems and they were having a lot of problems with them and they, and they uh, were having some problems with, they had a well too. Okay. Um, so, it, and they were having some issues with their, with their well, with the water, not, you know, testing correctly. And so it was just, a, it was enough. It probably could have been salvaged. I think the park is still there today. Uh, but at that time it was just, it seemed like a lot of unknowns that that I needed to get some, some help with. Um, so I figured if I went and got some coaching, I'd learn about, you know, private utilities are a little bit more common in mobile home parks than they are in other forms of real estate. So just to be able to get the, um, get the coaching on private utilities and, you know, being able to price the asset. I had no idea how to price the asset at that time. Right. You know, it, it's just, if you get coaching on, on something, it puts you so much further ahead than trying to learn it yourself. It certainly does. Mm-hmm. It certainly does. And that's, uh, and that's super important, but but you know, but you you went in, you know, almost school uh, school hard knocks, right? <laughs> you figured, hey, I'm just going to jump into this, and then I'm going to get the coaching pie, which is, is cool, which is cool. That's fine, you know. And it worked out for you, right? I mean, you, you experienced some challenges, but overall, you know, kind of launched you into your uh, into your career. Um, but can you can you talk about mm-hmm. some more of the uh, the challenges that you faced, you know, in that part where you were getting started? You mentioned something about the utilities. Right, having to make sure that that all that stuff was aligned properly, um, and then you were able to handle that stuff. But was there anything else? Any other challenges that you experienced? Yeah, the probably the biggest challenge that I had starting out is um, I was still rotating overseas to Iraq. I was spending about ten months a year there. I was in I was basically an expat of, of, and, and living in that country, paying taxes and everything. Wow, and um. And we didn't, so I stayed at the embassy, the U.S. embassy in Baghdad, and uh, we couldn't make outbound calls on our telephone. So we could, we could take an inbound call, but you had to call a, you had to call a number and put like a seven digit code in and, and, and go through a, an, an actual live operator and everything to, to get to, uh, to my room to talk to me. So I couldn't really do direct mail because the, the call to action for them to call me would have been just too insane. And then um, as far as dialing out using my cell phone, it was about $3 a minute and I couldn't use my Iraq number because you know, no one wants to see an 18 digit number pop up on their phone. You know, they're not going to answer that. <laughs> <Right>. So, <laughs> but uh, so I had to use my cell phone. It was about $3 a minute. So, the challenge that I had is I had to be very, very good on the phone 
talking to these owners. I had to know exactly why I had to study them and know that there was a, there was a need for them to sell, whether or not they'd seen it yet or not. So I looked at things like I, I didn't call an owner unless I knew that there was maybe they weren't paying their taxes or if their park was just way under market and they were older, I would call them, but there had to be some kind of reason that they, that, that logically they would be selling. So early on, that was a huge challenge uh, when I was on my own doing it is um, I had to deal with that. Um, outside of that, you know, I, I think that even then in 2013, when it was, I guess everyone kind of calls that the heyday or even before then, it's kind of the heyday of finding deals. It was still hard to find deals then. Right. And uh, I that you know, that doesn't change in any market. So just being able to be persistent and find deals, that's, the quality that you have to have no matter what type of market you're in. Absolutely. No, you're right. And that persistence is huge. Um, so I want to, I want to touch real quick on the dynamic of mobile home park investing and, and maybe Tim, maybe you can, you can help us out here too, because uh, for those of you who don't know, Tim is also a mobile home park investor. Um, but you know, what's the mindset that people should have when they look at mobile home parks, right? Because I know people sometimes give it a bad rap where they say, oh, well, it's trailer parks. I don't really want to deal with that, um, you know, the, the issues. But what, 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 what is the real mindset that investors should look at when it comes to investing in those types of investments? I think... Um that's a good question. I think that really the, the tenants there are no different than you're going to find in a, in a C-class apartment complex or in a, um, or in a lower, you know, like a C-class neighborhood. There's not much of a difference. I mean, the, the, a, lot of these, a lot of these families that live in a mobile home park, I mean, I, I grew up in one from the age of basically until I was from a, when I was born until about three years old. My family was, my mom and dad were still at school in, at Virginia Tech and we lived in, in a mobile home park. So there's, there's, I mean, there's not much of a difference uh, from, from those people than there are of just anywhere else you're going to find. So the stigma is very unwarranted. So if you can get past the stigma, then that's, that's going to go a long way. Mm -hmm. um, but outside of that, the, the cash flows in a park are, I find them to be a lot more stable because the, the tenants, when they own their own home, uh, they, they, they tend to fight for it a lot more than they do if they're renting. So if they own the home, if they spent money and they've, if they bought the thing, they're a lot less willing to lose it than they would be if they were a renter. So I think this, I think the cash flows are a heck of a lot more stable than they would be in, in many other asset classes, at least the vacancy loss part of it. And then, you know, outside of that, I, I, mean, I just think, um, you know, you're, you're dealing with a, a property that doesn't really have that many moving parts. The, the mobile home parks are very, very simple. They're really just nothing more than a road and some underground infrastructure. And so you're not dealing with a big building and all the components of a building and, and everything else. You're, you're really just dealing with a road and some underground infrastructure in you know mowing the grass and keeping the road clear mm -hmm. and that's about it there's very little once the once you've converted the park over uh, to a situation where all the tenants own their own homes it's, it sort of runs like a 
kind of like a neighborhood association is, is kind of what it's more like than anything else. Okay. Uh, once it, uh, once yeah. it works like that, then you you don't have too many major infrastructure issues that are going to cost you millions, you know? Right. Now oh, that makes sense. Tim, Tim, you got any insight on that as well? Yeah, man, there's a huge stigma that it's just mobile home parks because of the media. Um, you, you know, you look at movies like eight mile where you think of a mobile home park. A lot of people automatically assume there's going to be cars on bricks, bulldogs and pit bulls on chains, drug activity, <laughs> crime, uh, you know, and, and law enforcement is going to be needed called every day. And that's just not the case. I mean, first of all, it starts with management and what kind of morale and culture the management enforces and puts in place in the park. And a lot of these, especially when they own their own home, they just want to be homeowners. They just don't have a high enough income to buy a brick and, you know, a, a, a brick and mortar stick built home in a nicer neighborhood because they just don't have high of an income or the way I see it, a lot of these people are actually smarter because they only buy a home that they could, that they know they could afford. So they have, you know, the, the, they'll have more disposable income than the, the figmented American dream of someone buying as much house as they possibly could get approved for and then living paycheck to paycheck. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation, but these people are good people who just want to have this pride of home ownership and, and they want to, um, take pride in their home. And, and a lot of those people may cut their own grass. And of course you have to enforce, you know, pay, no stay. And you know, if their windows are blasted out, they can't just put a piece of wood over it and they can't have dogs on their on chains and they can't have like, you have to enforce on the spot. Otherwise they're going to take advantage of that. Mm. Um, so it's just, it's just, it all starts with a basic education, learning these simple things and then when you look at the numbers and analyze the deal, you're going to realize, wow, there's a lot of ops upside. Wow, the cap rates are traditionally higher. Wow, there's a lot more cash flow that could be made and profit more, higher profit margins compared to a BRC class uh, apartment community. And I mean, that's, that's why I love them. Um, and there's less competition in that asset class. I mean, there's not as many investors are looking at that asset class because of this stigma. But I think investors in the multifamily space are, are getting smarter and smarter and more open-minded because the cap rates over the last couple of years have been so tight and apartment communities have been harder, harder to find. Um, but Charles, I did want to know, you know, we kind of going back a few minutes, we talked about how you want to learn more about the private utilities and the, and the systems um, and the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So what is your take and from based on your experience, well systems, Versus septic systems versus municipal. Mm. Um, I think that you're probably even for your first deal, if I would recommend most people, unless you have a background in private systems and you, and you know them well, um, I would really lean and encourage anyone who's buying their first deal to, to make that on a public system. Usually that first deal is what you, you're, you're buying it so you can get free from your you know, from your working life and be a full-time real estate investor. That's, you know, my first deal with city water, city sewer. It was very, very safe, very, very safe deal. And uh, my second deal was the deal that I wound up doing a septic system on. Mm. So that first deal kind of became, this is my safety net. I always know that's coming, that that income's coming in. And if something happens with the second deal, 
then I can just use money that I have in reserve to, to sort of fix it. And um, I would encourage anybody that's buying their first deal to do, to do public versus private because there's so many things that can go wrong with private that a lot of times you're, you're not going to catch them. And this is, this is kind of the reason why is what I've, what I've found is when you're doing due diligence on a, on a park that has a private sewer issue or even a, a private water issue, um, private water issues are a lot easier to, to identify, but public or private sewer issues, a lot of times you're dealing with the local, uh, the local officials and what they what they typically do is they'll ignore you instead of telling you that the system is, is screwed up and they've got all these violations. They'll just ignore you, wait for you to close. And then that's when, um, that's when you'll start learning about the issues that are really there. And, uh, that happened to me on my, on the fifth park I bought the, basically the, the, the DEP, we tried to contact them multiple times and they wouldn't tell us anything about the, uh, the septic system that we were, that we were dealing with. And then come to find out it had a bunch of DEP violations after we closed that, um, that he made aware of us, you know, about a, about a two weeks after we closed, we got a, a really nasty letter from DEP. Uh, do, do and, you mind uh, breaking down what, what a DEP is? Yeah. It's the department of environmental protection. So that park had basically a, uh, it was a failed, what, what, what the owner did is they, they bypassed their failed leach field. They ran a pipe over the hill and was dumping uh, gray water, which is essentially the, the water inside of a septic tank. Mm. They were dumping that gray water into a trash pile that they had, that they had built. So as we were cleaning this trash pile up, um, one of the contractors found this pipe and then that's when DEP sent us a nasty letter. But uh, come to find out many years earlier, DEP knew about that pipe, that situation. So, you know, it was a really a big learning experience because you, you think that the city is going to tell you that there's an issue when they know of one, but that's rarely the case. So if they're, if they're not telling you anything, if they're, if they're kind of ghosting you on their calls, you're doing the private system, that's usually a, a warning sign to just drop the deal. Um, wow. that's happened to us numerous times. So that's probably the big thing with private utilities is these cities and these smaller parks, they, they really want that new owner to come in. That's got deep pockets. They're hoping you're, you're it, uh, because they've probably exhausted all their means with the old owner. And so they're, they're looking at you as like the deep pocket guy who's going to be able to fix this, but they got to kind of trick you into it. So that kind of stuff happens in the private sewer world. And, um, the other thing that happens is a lot of these parks are kind of old, might have been built in the 60s or 70s, and so these private systems have a lifespan, and a lot of them are are failing nowadays. And so, you know, it, it's uh, it really just goes into reserve budgeting. So if you've got a system, let's say it's a million dollar treatment plant, and they normally have around a 30 to a 50 year lifespan. Well, you kind of have to budget that out of your cash flow every year because eventually that's going to catch up. So if you're buying a park that's from the seventies on a wastewater treatment facility, that's, that's, you know, going to cost you half a million or a million dollars to re to completely uh, replace, then that really does affect your purchase price. And a lot of that's, that's a lot of that's missed by people when they're, when they're bidding on a deal. 
uh, the age of some of these systems and the likelihood that they'll be replaced in the next five to 10 years and uh, how much that might cost and what that might do to their, you know, what the true cap rate of what they actually paid. So um, a lot of these systems are kind of they're playing hot potato with them. So when you deal with private utilities, you really have to know what you're doing. Mm. Um, it is kind of, you know, cause, cause some of the price tag, those, those are easily the most expensive things that can happen to you as a park owner is replacing a private utility system. Right. And do you recommend that a manager handles this kind of, you know, interaction just to make sure that it's, uh, you know, that everything's happening or is this something that you recommend people actually understand and know and get into the weeds for? Um, I would, uh, hire a licensed operator as opposed to, so you're, a lot of people will have their manager go get the license, be a licensed operator. Okay. But you have to understand that you, your manager is not an expert on, you know, testing of a, a well system or, a, you know, maintaining a wastewater treatment plant. So there are experts in the market that handle these things that handle commercial wells and they handle treatment plants. Cause you know, the city is, has got tons of these treatment plants all over the place. Right. So you can, um, you know, all you have in your park, if you've got a treatment plant is a scaled down version of a city treatment plant. Mm -hmm. And so there's operators everywhere that do this stuff for a living and uh, getting a good operator can save you, can save you a lot of money in the long run. But I wouldn't recommend anyone go do it themselves, you know, because again, you want to get an expert involved. Yeah, absolutely. Especially someone who knows how to scope out and inspect the septic tanks and, and, uh, who are actually certified to to do it. Not just some random plumber in the, especially a lot of these, a lot of these parks are in tertiary or maybe secondary markets, uh, where it's going to, you're going to have to dig deep to find those certified people, um, make a bunch of calls just to find that expert. And it's definitely, it's definitely worth it. Um, Charles. So, some mobile home parks <clears throat> have homes where the tenant owns the home and they own mm-hmm. the land underneath it. How do you value that? And what is your experience with that? Mobile home parks where tenants own the land underneath it. That's right. Hmm. Are you talking about like a fractured park where there's some of the lots they, they've kind of individually parceled them and there's lots in the park that you own and then the tenants own? Yeah. So let's say, you know, if you're looking at a a portfolio um, and, you know, 25 of the 25 of the spots are actually separately divided and they're separately owned and the tenants not only own the home, but they own the ground underneath it. But you own the community and the infrastructure. Um, Do you have any experience with that? And how would you value that? Yeah, we've looked at those before. The reason we didn't. that we didn't pursue them was because you can't control the rules mm. in that situation. So you've got, you know, you've got Sanford and son that owns their own land and they don't have to follow your rules. And so you, you might make the park really beautiful, but you got this one guy who's got like eight cars in his yard, you know, and unless there's some other way that you can enforce those rules, like maybe the code enforcement can do something, but you know, it was out in the County. There's, there's very little you can do with that. So we always shy away from those because it's really hard to, um, we like to control the entire community just to, just to, just to keep everything uniform with the rules and everything else. Right. Yeah. And to mitigate that risk. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, the great divide in, in, um, in the mobile home park world is, is park owned homes versus tenant owned homes. And a lot of times, Mm -hmm. a lot of people are told, you know, 100% tenant owned homes is always the best because they're, you know, not only homeowners, so they would take more pride of home ownership, but they, uh, take care of the all the expenses and the maintenance and the taxes and insurance and all that and there's very little overhead and expenses for the owner but we've seen from our experience that um, tenant owned homes a, a lot of times when you try to enforce rules they could they could just come back and say well this is my home I own this home you can't you can't enforce this um, and of course park owned homes there's a lot more potential for that high profit margin yeah if you have to have those systems in place, to, to track all the transactions right on your books because there's going to be a lot more maintenance calls that you're, you'll have to deal with. So what, what is your thought on park owned home versus tenant owned home? Um, I think it, I think it situation kind of dictates a little bit on that. So we've got, we've got some parks and markets where I put a, I put a, if I get park owned homes in the sale and the transaction, I'm, I'm actually happy because some of these park-owned homes, and, and if, you, if you look in markets like uh, some of the really good New York markets or just Northeast in general, you can make money with a home sales business. So if you get, uh, I'll give you an example. We had a 1995 double wide that wasn't, it was nice, but it wasn't anything spectacular. And uh, we sold it out of our park and we had a park in Buffalo, New York, and we sold that home for something like $79,000. And uh, if you took that same home and you sold it out of you know one of our parks in Alabama, you might get you might get fifteen for it. Oh wow! So oh. there's a big difference in pricing depending Jeez. on where you are. And um, but if you look at uh, if if you're if you're stuck with this mentality of never owning any of the homes, then you'll probably never buy a deal. I've I've only come across a handful of deals um, in, the, in the five or so years I've been doing this that are all tenant-owned homes. And even those communities, the ones that we bought like that, eventually we did wind up having to buy a home back from a resident because they got in trouble and they, they or they died and, and their family sold it to us. Mm. So you're, you're, you're always going to be in the homes business no matter what. You got you to get over it. Um, but they're not that scary. I mean, again, just as there's nothing to these parks, these, these, mobile homes, there's nothing to those things either. I mean, they're not that expensive to repair. Um, you can make them look really nice for relatively little money. And, you know, you're, you're better off having a home that you own on a lot than having no home. So even if you've got to buy homes and own them and, and do some type of creative thing to, you know, incentivize a, a tenant to, uh, to try to own it, it's better to do that than it is to just leave the lot vacant. So, um, I don't, I don't ever find anything wrong with park owned homes. I think you just have to strike a balance. Uh, I think our portfolio is about maybe 20% park owned versus 80% tenant owned. So we kind of like being in that, being in that range. Yeah. I like, that's a good ratio. That's definitely a good ratio. I like it. I mean, one of our criteria is, you know, at least 50% 
tenant owned homes or more uh, per park. But I mean, we're looking at a couple mm-hmm. of portfolios, uh, you know, where it's like a, a three park portfolio or a four park portfolio and they're mostly tenant owned. Uh, but then one of the parks entirely is all park owned and they're older. The, the condition's not really there and the rent's not there. I mean, there's a lot of upside, uh, but all that, 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 that would significantly increase the, the expenses, but cool. Yeah. Thanks for the feedback. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, if you, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. If you split, yeah, if you split the two businesses up, and this is this is why people don't like park owned homes as much. If you split the two businesses up, and you just look at the revenue and expenses of a of the tenant owned homes, and even the even the portion of rent that someone who lives in a park owned home pays, just take all that and lump it into, let's call it the land lease component. Then your expense ratio is usually going to be between, on the very very low end, thirty percent. You'll pay in expenses, so you make a hundred thousand dollars of revenue. You'll pay thirty thousand in expenses. On the high end, it might be fifty thousand. That would be for you know your private utility type park. Might be fifty thousand. You know when you're having issues. Yeah. Um, but on the park-owned home side, if you're renting park-owned homes and you're, it's over a long enough period of time and, and you're looking at it across a broad enough number of homes you'll tend to find that your expense ratio on the homes is, is, you know, your, your revenue is going to be lower because you've got some vacancy loss. Then you, so it's lower than you might expect typically. And then, and then typically your expenses might be in that 50, 60% range. And then there's no debt either. So when you have no debt um, on, on those assets, it makes them, you, you have no leverage no, no levered returns and the returns are a lot lower and and then you, you just have um, most of your employee hours are tied up in these homes too so that's the reason people don't like them but it's it's a fact of life in this business I mean the perfect world would be having no, no homes but uh, it's very hard to get there yeah absolutely absolutely that is awesome wow this is thank you so much sir for your, for your time this has been absolutely amazing um, you got so much amazing knowledge and it seems like there's a lot more to unpack here too. Uh, so, you know, if, if possible, we'd love to have you back on here just so we can kind of deep dive a little yeah. more about how someone can get started, uh, with this. Definitely. But, um, but I, I since we're running out of time, I got to take you into our bonus round. I've got three final questions for you. Um, the first one, um, what is your favorite book? I'd say, uh, my favorite book, especially the, of the books that I've read recently, is uh, a book that uh, Sam Zell wrote. So anyone who's not familiar with Sam Zell, he's a, at one time he was the largest owner of apartments uh, and the largest owner of office uh, buildings and mobile home parks in the entire country. So his company is called Equity Lifestyle. And so he's sort of a, um, at least in the multifamily world, he's a bit of a real estate legend. And he had never really done too much, I think as far as writing is concerned. Uh, so he recently wrote an autobiography and it was called, am I being too subtle? And it's all about his, um, you know, how he got started in real estate and all the way up through, you know, building those, you know, multi-billion dollar companies, um, and, and the types of things that he does today. So that book is, uh, is an excellent book. I'd recommend anyone who's interested in real estate to read. Am I being too subtle? <laughs> all right. Yep. <laughs> That is awesome by Sam Zell. We'll definitely take a look at that. And guys, there'll be show notes um, or be a link to that in the show notes page. 
uh, for sure. So make sure you grab a copy of that. Um, thank you. Thank you for that recommendation. Yeah. Um, question number two, who is your biggest hero and why? I would say in the, uh, at least in the business world, I would say that would be Richard Branson. And uh, I think it just, you know, there's, there's so much about Richard Branson's story that, um, you know, that I think that, uh, that is very appealing, you know, the way that he started Virgin Records, and starting Virgin Airlines. I mean, there's so many great stories that, uh, that have been told about him. And, and I think that um, as far as, uh, you know, big business guys, he's probably my, my favorite, just, uh, just because of his attitude and the way that he conducts business. And, you know, his entire um, sort of, he has a kind of a counterculture on the way that you run a, run a business. And I really enjoy that. Yeah, he's definitely a motivating individual. Uh, for those of you who Absolutely. do not know, yeah, who do not know who he is, you need to go figure out who he is, man. He is uh, so motivating. It's so humble too, you know? I think that's what I yeah. like so much about him. He's very humble. I mean, every time I hear him speak, it's just, you know, it's just always awe-inspiring to watch him, you know, the things, the, the knowledge and the wisdom that he uh, just freely gives out, you know, anytime he's asked to, to speak, you know, it's just, it's just amazing. It is. Man, we'd, be, we'd be lucky to get him on the podcast. So uh, if you can help yeah, there us you out go. with that, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can tag team that effort there, but hey. But uh, all right. Um, final question. What three nuggets of wisdom could you give to those who are just getting started? Um, I mean, I've got three that are maybe overplayed nuggets of wisdom, but um, you know, the first one I would say is just never give up. Um, that's definitely the first one because I think it's, you know, at least from where, you know, the last five years I've been in business and, and being an educator, I've seen so many people give up uh, before, um, before they were just inevitably going to make it, you know? So it takes time to get started in any business and real estate's no different. You know, my first deal took, uh, my first deal in mobile home parks took almost 23 months uh, to, to go from when I first had an interest and I knew that I was going to buy one to actually closing my first one. So it takes time. time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It takes time. And there's, you know, everyone's got a, they're, they're going to have a story very similar to that where um, they'll be faced with times where they just kind of want to give up. And then, you know, it really is just pushing through it and, and eventually it, it, it comes together. Um, you know, the second one would be the power of good planning and, I think we know this as, as, as guys in the military, but I see a lot of people go into, uh, you know, trying to start a business or, you know, do any type of, um, you know, they're, they're putting together a plan to buy X number of, you know, units in real estate or whatever. You know, there's, there's gotta be, you know, there, there's one thing to be said about taking action without, you know, doing any planning. I mean, there's people that, that talk about that all the time, but I think that a good carefully uh, well thought out plan um, that can save you a lot of time. So you don't want to over plan, but at the same time, you don't want to go into it with no plan, just, you know, throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks, you know, you, you need to have some type of plan. Right. Um, and that's, uh, you know, and it, and it really is, I think that that's often overlooked by a lot of beginners. And then I would say the, the third thing is whatever niche you're going to get into, just, you, you need to become an expert at it. So, one of the things that really helped me when I got into mobile home parks was doing that database and being the one that was, was actually doing the databasing because it taught me 
who the big owners were and, you know, in, in doing all that research for, um, you know, to, to figure out those, uh, those big players in my market, you know, it taught me a lot of things about, uh, those owners. What well, was very, you know, how, who they were, um, you know, the things they had in common with each other that really helped me write good marketing to them. And it helped me, you know, figure out how to approach these owners as well too. So when you become an expert, you know, it, uh, it, in your niche, I think that's, um, that right there is a, it's a huge competitive advantage and, and you need to be striving towards it. Very, very true. Wow. Those are solid. Those are absolutely solid. Well, uh, Thank you, Mike. Uh, all right. <laughs> Thank yeah. you so much for that wisdom. That was, that was great. And, um, um, I wanted to ask real quick on what, what is, what's next for you, sir? Probably the next thing is I'm starting to kind of get back involved with, um, with some of the military organizations. So okay. I'm not sure when you guys are going to release this podcast, but there's, uh, I'm starting to work with the uh, Scout Sniper Association and they've got a uh, rifle raffle that they do every, I think they do it twice a year. Uh, but this year they're doing the drawing on March the 17th and they're sort of raising money for, um, you know, it used to be that a lot of the sniper platoons around the, uh, around the Marine Corps had to kind of, you know, depend on the sniper association to get, you know, stuff like, um, you know, very specific types of binoculars and camera equipment and stuff like that to help us do our jobs. Uh, but nowadays the, the focus has shifted, um, to kind of helping, you know, veterans from our specific community, uh, get assistance with, you know, guys that might be missing limbs to get their house modified or, um, the scholarship fund for, uh, the kids of, of fallen snipers. So that's, that's where a lot of this, this funding is going these days is, uh, to do those projects. And, um, I'm not sure if you're going to release this before March the 17th, but I can give you the, uh, they're, they're raffling off a, an M40 sniper rifle with fully decked out the way that we, the, just the way that we carried those in, 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 in Afghanistan. So, oh, wow. okay. um, <laughs> it's uh, about a $6,000 rifle and it's, it's sweet. It's a really that, sweet gun. That is awesome. All right. Well, we'll but, um, post this before then. So yeah, the, that drawing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the website scoutsniper.org and you go to events and programs and then rifle raffle. I'm sure I, I can just give you that for the show notes as well. Yeah, please. Thank you. So doing some of that stuff. And then, um, outside of that, you know, uh, still working a little bit here and there with sunrise, I kind of stepped away from the day to day of the, the company that, that I started with, uh, with Kevin Bupp. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're sort of, um, we're still working. We're, we're right now we're a net seller. The market is so, uh, saturated with buyers right now. And the cap rates are very, very compressed that, uh, we're, we're now in a time period where we're actually selling more parks than we're buying. Wow. Um, okay. so right now we're in the process of prepping eight, eight parks to go to market. And, um, so that's what that's the biggest project we have in front of us, and then obviously working with uh, with Tim there on uh, you know ADPI's um, uh, launch for their coaching program. That's that we're going to be um, utilizing a lot of the videos from a coaching program that I had built a couple of years ago, and uh, should be a good project. Outstanding, and we're all looking so forward to it. And thank you so much for uh, for all your help, sir, on that uh, on yeah. that project. Definitely, I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, really thank, do. Thank you. How, how can yeah, I? It was a pleasure, that? man. It was great. Yeah. 
<laughs> how can our how can our guests get in touch with you, sir? Um, I've got an email address, uh, dhart0317 at gmail.com. So I don't, you know, I don't, uh, at, at sunrise, I didn't do a lot of the, I, I deal with more of the employees and things like that. So I didn't, I don't have any fancy email addresses or anything like that. I don't have a web page or anything, but if you want to get in touch with me, that's, that's probably the best way. So dhart, D-E-H-A-R-T 0317 at gmail and, uh, I'll get it. All right. Awesome. Well, that'll be in the show notes page, guys. That's valuable. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> and thank you so much again, sir, for your time. And Tim, thank you so much for co-hosting this. This was great. Um, Absolutely. And uh, yeah, have a great day. Take good care. Thanks, See you, Charles. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Mike. See you, Tim. Outstanding. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you so much, Charles, for coming on to the show. Man, that was motivating. Hey, make sure that you guys are going out and educating yourselves on stuff that is new. We've never had a mobile home park uh, podcast before, and so I'm super glad to have done it. And uh, yeah, and I'm excited for this multifamily course that's coming out. All right, make sure that you guys get ready for that. And also, make sure you guys are reaching out. Check out our Facebook page. Check out our Start the Spark um, group. And also, make sure that you check out our website for new updates and what's going on, okay? If you're ready to take action, make sure you check out www.activedutypassiveincome.com and grab our academy, all right? We are here to teach you guys what's going on, and we're also here to mentor and coach you. So if you're interested in that, make sure that you schedule a call so we can talk more about our priority group and our rapid deploy program. I'm out of here, guys. Later. Later.